Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners. In this episode, we have Jonathan Kasdan, one of my favorites. Uh, He's the creator of the new Willow series, currently in the middle of its first season on Disney+. We're four episodes in, and we have four episodes to go. It's pretty amazing so far. I strongly recommend it uh, for fans of the original Willow, which came out in 1988, and uh, even for people who aren't familiar with Willow. It's an epic fantasy which expounds upon the narrative of the original while still kind of paying homage to it. What's really unique about it is that it has a lot of nods to the original. You know, it uses uh, some animatronics, um, even with all the CGI um, advancements today, which are definitely utilized in the show. uh, It has some of those callbacks, which, you know, were a staple of that genre in the 80s where you had you know movies like princess bride um embracing that almost jankiness that that beloved jankiness uh willow has always been a combination of romance comedy and action adventure and that is Jonathan Kasdan's uh, bread and butter, if you will. And we talk about, you know, the inception of the series. We talk about Solo, a Star Wars story, which he co-wrote. And we talk about his earlier career. He uh, worked on Freaks and Geeks, Dawson's Creek, And uh, we talk about one of my favorite films in the land of women, where he got to work with Adam Brody, who's an OC alumni. And the OC is really, you know, I think an extension of the teen romance genre that he helped usher in with uh, Freaks and Geeks. So, uh, this is uh, a great episode. It's uh, really informative. I hope you enjoy it as much as uh, John and I did. Without further ado, here's the episode. Hi. Hey, John. How you go. How's it going? Good. How are you? Great. I love that poster behind your head. Oh, yeah. This is my Italian Edward Scissor. Yeah. <laughs> it was a seminal movie for me in my childhood. Me too. Yeah. Really just like a lot about like romance and 
and love stories and how they work and fairy tales and all that. It's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, it really affected me and I didn't understand why I wanted yeah. to put it together until, like, until later on. I was, uh, it's it's wow. a really powerful, powerful and surreal dream movie. It really is. Yeah. Very different kind of fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Thanks for, for joining. Glad to be here. Shattering superstructure. Yes, sir. That's it. Um, yeah, what's I think what's what I really enjoy about your career, speaking of those ingredients, yeah. is that you know, you've explored uh comedy, romance, and action, uh right. and action yes. adventure. And, and sort of like combine those um, and really well, I mean, yeah and I mean some of, I think some of my favorite movies are, are are the movies that sort of most successfully sort of fuse those those elements together you know and I what comes to mind are you know things like uh, things like like Princess Bride which really did it kind of beautifully for me and and, and raiders too um but princess bride was really the love story at its core and it, its sense of humor was so in line with with mine as a kid you know and and just it represented a kind of work that that i think we all sort of aspired to or at least my friends and i when we were growing up that just fused this romanticism this sort of fun and, and buoyancy with uh, with with action and, and adventure, which was the elements we loved, you know, and why we went to the movies mainly. Yeah, I know. Totally. I, I, I completely agree. Um, I love Princess Bride. Yeah. And just such a good one. And, and Willow was obviously a huge part yeah. of 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 growing up i think that's very firmly in that in that yeah no it's a weird period in the 80s when these really sort of accomplished filmmakers were were trying to make fantasy movies and trying to make one that would would break through and you had you know a lot of incredible directors like like rob reiner and then like you know like ron and then like uh Dick Donner doing Lady Hawk and and uh, Wolfgang Peterson doing Never Any Story and you know Ridley Scott doing Legend. I mean, it was a really like a time when all these guys were sort of taking a swing at the at the genre mm -hmm. and with with really kind of disappointing results. I think for each of them in terms of not in terms of the movies. You know, ultimately, I think all those movies sort of had a lasting important impact but in terms of what they were used to in their careers success wise right it was just never the movies that they they were most sort of pleased with their performance yeah and it's, a, it's a funny thing to sort of to see the movies then all have sort of in retrospect received a kind of love that i think is specific to the time too because you know you make those movies now it's hard to imagine that 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 the streaming versions of those movies have the lifespan that the theatrical movies that that those guys made will have, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. They've had 
they've had a second life. Yeah. And, um, you know, more followings, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Exposure and just. And because of home video and the way we related to home video was, was, I think, different than the way we relate to streaming now, where it's like you'd go back and you'd, you'd watch something maybe over the course of seeing it, you know, once a year or something. Whereas I feel like now it's more the kids today tend to binge something. They tend to watch it again and again for a short period (laughs) and then move on to something else, you know? Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I, you know, it's just it's anecdotal, but it's been what I've noticed with my with my nephews and my niece and, you know, and the kids around me a little bit. And it, it was very specific to the times where you just like you'd go to the video store and be like, should we rent Willow again? Like, yeah, sure. We haven't seen it in six months. Yeah. Yeah. The the rewatch. Yeah. Um. Oh, man, I miss that spending like. I used to spend up to like two hours walking down up and down the aisles of the video store. Just. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, things like Back to the Future and, and Ghostbusters, those movies, because of that relationship to them, I think, you know, that's how I how myself and my brother and my friends and I developed this relationship with them where we knew every line of them. You know, mm-hmm. it was just because we kept coming back to them over the course of our childhood, you know. And yeah. this Willow too for me that was very much how I related to it and why it was so sort of such a funny thing when when I sort of got involved with Lucasfilm and started to explore the possibility of doing this I could see that for 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 Kathy and and for for most of the people around me they just didn't have anything like that kind of relationship to it they knew that it was this movie they knew that their friends had made it that it had this incredible Val performance that that people had remembered. But for kids of a very specific age, and I was, you know, I was eight or seven or eight when the movie came out, it just became this sort of one of the essential texts in that way. Like it was a movie we all knew and could quote in a way that I don't think that the people uh, around me at, at Disney or, or at Lucasfilm quite they weren't exactly of that generation. So so the level of enthusiasm that so many of us had for it was sort of a little surprising to them and a little bit of something they like had to like sort of take on faith, as ironically was true of the young cast of the show too, because they didn't have any kind of relationship with the movie either. So between sort of the bosses and and the kids embodying it was this generation of us who were like, yeah, we know everything Mad Mardigan ever said, you know? <laughs> and it was a funny dynamic. Uh, definitely, we seemed a little geeky to, to both up and down. I bet. <laughs> yeah, and you know, <laughs> You wrote you wrote an episode of Freaks and Geeks, um, which really ushered in a new wave of, I think, teen comedy in the 21st century. Yeah. You know, as well as Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Um did this, you know, 
background help inform your your writing at least the, the absolutely i mean working on freaks and geeks i was you know i was coming out of i was a, i i'd gone to nyu for a year i wanted to study film i knew i wanted to do this and my brother had already been working in the business you know he sort of come off of a year or so in college too and and then made a wonderful movie called zero effect and He'd gotten involved with with Judd uh, on Freaks and Geeks. And I was sort of at the time when that show sort of got picked up against all odds. I was flirting with coming back and and I had a script that was floating around. And Jake had sort of said to me, you know, you should come meet Judd because you uh, offer an unusual thing to this to this thing, which is the this high school stuff is very current and immediate for you. You got out of high school last year. and I went in and met him and he's, you know, they offered to, to, they sort of said, well, you can write one, you know, well, we'll put you on as a, a staffer and we'll assign you one script. But the upshot of that was that because it was the last episode we were going to write, um, or rather the second to last, I guess, I was able to just be there for the whole sort of life of the making of that show. And it, it was certainly the most sort of, it was my version of, of going to film school and going to college was being around those guys as they too were learning how to do it, you know? And it, and it was an interesting dynamic because, because Paul Feig and, and Judd were, were so new to hour long drama, you know, they'd come out of comedy and, and Feig had come out of being an actor and yeah. various weird ways and they were they were really just like learning how to do it but they knew that what they had that was special was an authenticity about their own experience growing up mm. and then ironically the, the person I met in that writer's room and, and subsequently became sort of my best friend over the last 22 years was was Mike White who had come out of Oh, working on Dawson's Creek um, and was ironically though but a kid the most experienced sort of writer of hour-long teen drama in the group. Um, and somehow in this dynamic between Mike and Judd and and Paul and, you know, a few other people who'd come from Judd's side, this very original kind of teen drama was sort of born. And, I, you know, I, I was mainly, mainly just a witness to it and got to see how it, how it sort of evolved and how they found a way of turning things like, you know, watching uh, Caddyshack for the first time into an entire episode of television, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't always an easy, it wasn't always an easy thing to do, but the result really informed so much of the specificity, I think, of high school comedy that, that came after it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And to that point, one of the shows that I think really yeah. was made because of that or was influenced by that heavily was the OC. Totally. Um, you know, which ironically had another weird, my life intersected with that too. In, in, in the land of women. Yeah, right? Because I, yeah, because I, well, when, when I, I sort of, after Dawson's and, and then having some time of just trying to write and figure out a movie, I, I ended up in the very sort of special position of getting to make sort of an original script, which was in the land of women. And I was looking for a guy and this was right when, 
the OC was sort of at the end of its first season and, and Adam so struck me, Adam Brody is, as the kind of guy that I was looking for um, just in his sound and in his rhythms and in his comic timing. Um, and we met and I sort of instantly wanted him to do it. And then he and Josh Schwartz were very close and, and they were both sort of in relationships that would end up being long-term relationships. And that became sort of my group of friends and, and, and Josh specifically, you know, I, I was seeing him and meeting him and we were becoming really close at a moment right after he'd had this sort of phenomenal success coming off of, of the OC, which I agree. It, it definitely, what I think Josh did so well that, 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 Freaks and Geeks could never have done, which is it emerged something very sexy and soapy mm. with this kind of sense of humor and sensibility. And and that proved to be a, a longer lasting formula than Freaks and Geeks uh, was able to be. Um, and then he, you know, he he ran with it for, for many years. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting. And in, in between these shows, it's sort of like you know, and then Dawson's Creek sort of inhabits this weird middle ground because it was formative for Mike in terms of his early writing career. You know, I mean, it's hard to say really what what's formative for Mike because he's a he's a kind of a natural genius in a way that's hard to put your finger on exactly. But he came out of certainly working on Dawson's and 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 that experience was formative and then then he came out of of freaks and geeks but his voice was really his own and i think he brought to both those shows as much as he gave you know um so it, it's an interesting thing that he sort of at the end of of working on freaks and geeks i was thinking you know maybe i go back to nyu or try to write something original and he's like no no you should go meet with these guys at, at dawson's because i come from there and you know, you, you might have fun. And I ended up doing that for a couple of years and sort of in the intermediary time between freaks and geeks and, 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 uh, and meeting Adam and, and the OC gang. So really like I was, I was at a real front row seat for a kind of high school, uh, smart assy writing that, that, that certainly has informed a lot of what I've done since. Yeah, I love that movie. I mean, yeah. it, it came out, I think, almost exactly two months after the OC officially ended. Yeah. And yeah. so you're working with Adam Brody, yes. one of like, the younger stars of this yeah. sort of new romance genre. And then you get to work with two legends, yeah. Meg Ryan and Olympia yeah. Dukakis, who in the yeah. 80s, 90s, like, were just... Yeah, I mean, that was, romance you know... Movie. Uh, Meg, I had met as a child because she'd made a movie with my dad called called French Kiss. Um, and I remember it was an, it was actually an oddly important movie in our family because uh, I was a freshman in high school and my parents sort of insisted that I that I go with them to um, to France for the making of it. So they took me out of high school uh, freshman year, beginning of my freshman year of high school. I was not happy about it. Uh, but ended up being one of the great and wonderful experiences of my life, which was going to live in Paris for six months and and being around that shoot, which was a particularly 
fun and and sort of joyful one because my my dad had it was a script by Adam Brooks who was fast becoming a good friend of his um, and they really got on well and and Kevin Klein who he'd worked with for years um, and Meg who he who he'd always sort of wanted to work with. Um, so we had this incredible six month period where we were sort of living in France and they were shooting in France and then in the South of France and in Cannes and X and all these places. And I had known her as this sort of ethereal goddess, you know, and, and had been so, so powerful in my childhood and in my ideas of what sort of the ideal woman looked like a little bit. And then I, I'd written this movie that was, uh, very personal in a lot of ways and very much about my family and about my experiences as a young man and, and, and growing up and all that romantic angst I was interested in. Um, and she was who I'd written it for. And, and I went and sort of uh, very much not expecting to get much of a response, sort of sent it to her people and, and she responded immediately and we had a lunch and, and she sort of, very gung ho with this kid director was like, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. Um, and then with Olympia, it, it was a similar thing of like, you know, I had been a fan forever. I had known her work from really the thing that, that, that I knew the way that I know movies like Ghostbusters or, or Back to the Future was Moonstruck. And I, you know, I, I, I met John Patrick Shanley and had sort of known him in my youth and, and Olympia seemed like an, a kind of person who was capable of doing the, the kind of physical comedy and the kind of character comedy that I was interested in. So I did find myself in this funny position where I had Adam Brody and, and Kristen Stewart on one side and, and then Meg and, and, and uh, Olympia on the other side. And it was really a, a, a trial by fire education in... And a, and a way too ambitious script, you know, and a script that, that wanted to be funny and wanted to be romantic and wanted to be a really sort of uh, piercing drama about mortality. And, you know, it was it was something that I could only have written at, at 24, but uh, but was, you know, an amazing experience because we got to all sort of go to shoot it up in Victoria Island in Canada and really make exactly the movie I sort of set out to make for, for better or for worse. And really where I learned the, the business of the, of, of, of making stuff and, and, and sort of the pitfalls of following your very specific vision. Uh, I think. I think it was for the better. Mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So solo i've got yes. my solo glass oh awesome from the alamo yeah. uh it was so good man <laughs> and i loved it and oh, so that's when you began the talks of, of sort of yeah actually... well, that was another very strange experience because you know it was one that i, I had entered into almost <laughs> uh very reluctantly i my my mother and i had sort of convinced my father that he was morally obligated to co-write uh episode seven with with jj uh okay. he felt it was a public service jj wanted him to do it and he had said no to writing the big star wars movies before and and we thought this was something he should do and i was very passionate in convincing him to do that and 
when he agreed, uh, one of the things he then felt I owed him was a helping hand on on solo, uh, which which I uh, did and and sort of had assumed was going to be a very short eight week writing job with him uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, and ended up being a good two years of our lives um, just because it was such a the movie happened much faster than anyone had sort of anticipated. And 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 then was was an incredibly complicated shoot and had all these different elements of it and was, you know, a wildly expensive movie and all of that. And sort of in the in the in the making of it, this this thing with with Warwick and and with Ron sort of developed because you know, I, I had sort of felt from the moment I, I had got involved with Lucasfilm and, and had even gone to visit on, on episode seven that it was imperative for them to, to start to think about how to grow beyond Star Wars and, and indie. Um, because I thought those things both had, while they were the heart of the company and certainly what, what was of value, they had challenges associated with them, which is that George had already made six Star Wars movies. You know, there'd been all this stuff. There'd been every possible sort of environment that could cater to life had been depicted or not cater to life had been depicted in Star Wars. Um, and Indy, you know, was really the question of how many of those could be made under the circumstances they were required to be made under was, was a question. Um, so I, I saw Willow, as I said, was, was a movie that I had grown up on and, and really had a deep affection for as an opportunity for them to expand in a way that had the, the safety of being part of George's oeuvre, you know, mm-hmm. which is like the, I guess I, I guess the real challenge for for Lucasfilm and the one that I I hope they take on is that at some point in order to continue to grow and be a a sustainable thing, I think they're going to have to develop new IP, you know, and and whether the the culture and the climate will have the patience for that right now it's an interesting problem. It's not one that I anticipated when I actually started out working with them. I thought like, well, yeah, they're going to make a bunch of these and then they're going to make some new stuff and it's all going to be exciting. But you see as the culture is evolving that it's, there's a real, you know, resistance to them sort of going beyond what George had already built out for them to do, you know? Um, but anyway, at the time of, of Solo, we we were having these conversations and 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 Willow was high on the list. And then this sort of uh, serendipitous meeting of, of Warwick and, and George and and uh, and Ron and myself sort of came together and I saw it as an opportunity and 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 it sort of spun, spun out from there over the course of the next four or five years, you know. That's okay. So was it originally like, were you thinking like a movie sequel or was it always going to be a. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things I loved about Willow was, was it's sort of propulsive storytelling. And, and, you know, what Ron had always sort of said to me about it was that 
it was much more akin to Raiders for him than it was to Star Wars, you know, because he wanted to make something that had that spirit of sort of swashbuckling adventure and one cliffhanger after the next, and then it's over, you know? And if you see the movie for, for, for its, all its strengths and its weaknesses, it is propulsive and, and it's a ride from beginning to end. And I sort of thought, well, we could do one more of those and, and maybe we could sustain this, this pitch that Ron had. But when Disney Plus launched right in the middle of us working on that movie, it was Ron who sort of said, well, this is how we actually going to get this made. And I was very ambivalent about it because I didn't think I knew that the tone of the movie and the, the pace of the movie was unsustainable over eight hours of television, um, particularly at a, at a budget, anything short of the final season of Game of Thrones, you know. Right. Um, so I was a little ambivalent that I we could deliver something satisfying. And it's funny because this actually relates to sort of the reaction to the show and, and all of it. But the way that it, it sort of it, it, I was able to get to what I thought could be a show was to lean into exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is this sort of self-discovery youth element of it and the the sort of angst and 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 teenage fun of it and I thought that you know to some extent I thought Val had given us a great entree into that because he 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 in, instilled the movie with such a contemporary sound and such a weird original thing for fantasy that it felt like it, it sort of opened the door to do a kind of almost my so-called life freaks and geeksy and kind of scene in this big, scary fantasy world, you know, and, and sort of that was the, the elevator pitch, if you will, that I sort of brought to Disney when, when I was pitching them the show and, and how we could sustain it over these episodes. And it was sort of what they bought into, but it's interesting because I, I, I've noticed that as the show has been released, the, the, the reaction is sort of there are very much people who are up for that element to be in Willow and to sort of lean into that character thing. And then the, the resistance to it seems to be pretty consistently that they didn't expect to see that element in their Willow. And what the hell is it doing here? And so it's sort of that's sort of a, the bed that I made for myself. And, and the one I I I sort of happily inhabit because it was the only way to turn Willow, the movie, into a, you know, into an eight-hour series for me, you know? Yeah. So that's that's sort of the, that's the trick. That's, yeah, that makes sense. And it sort of fits in with what's going on with streaming right now, you know? Yeah. On shows and... Uh... Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting thing. The, the industry's in such an odd spot, particularly this winter, well, where we've got, you know, where... Cameron seems to have made the biggest movie ever, you know, the most expensive bit of spectacle that's ever been created. Yeah. And then there's nothing else in the movie theaters. You know, it's like, it's a, it's death out there. Yeah. And, then, and then there's a, there's some TV. And then on the other side, you know, there's white Lotus, which is like grabbing the attention of the entire culture. And, you know, someone doing, in his case, the the most specific and, and kind of human 
drama possible in a way that would only have worked on television. So, you know, the kind of movies that that, that you and I grew up on, they're really struggling to find a, a place to sit in the cultural eye the way they did when we were growing up, you know? And I, I'd be curious to see what that looks like five years from now or, or whatever, because I do think these things are cyclical and the appetite for the kind of stories that we love hasn't gone anywhere. It just hasn't found the right form or something. Right. Exactly. Um, with the streaming boom and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's something so elegant. I mean, a great example is like, there's something so elegant and, and simple about, about Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. That I guess the closest you get now is like him making Wednesday, but it doesn't have right. the kind of, you know, it doesn't have the fable shape that, 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 uh, that Edward Scissorhands did. And as a result, it's a mystery and it's a teen show. And it's like, you know, it's like, that's a great example of exactly what we're talking about. It's like, yeah. I, oh. I could not see this this film being made today or where no, you can't, you the, can't the magic of it. Yeah. Uh, um, so Sorsha, so she's now the yes. malevolent queen, yes. taking over her malevolent mother's throne. Yeah. Okay. Um, the original is almost like we were talking about this. To me, it was like, you know, Return of the Jedi meets Princess Bride almost, uh, meets Jim Henson. Yeah. And, uh, totally. You know, now we have an ancient Great evil description. <laughs> now we have an ancient evil and threat of the gale, yes. new realms. Um, a series like this expands the world substantially while also, you know, honoring its source material like you were talking about. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you were saying is it's kind of a tricky tightrope um, to walk. Um, so, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's been an interesting thing because the other part of the journey, the, 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 the other half of the sort of serendipitous coming together of, of the people needed to make this show was that, again, as, as I have often been, I've had a great sort of front row seat to the previous Star Wars the Star Wars trilogy that we've just concluded, which I guess would be seven, eight, and nine. And sort of yeah. the challenges involved in trying to do exactly what, what Willow sort of hopes to do, which is to take something beloved yeah. and expand it in a way that's exciting and fun and, and feels like it has a reason to exist, you know? So on Force Awakens, there was this enormous outpouring of love and enthusiasm. And I think a lot of it was people were so grateful to be back in this world the way they were hoping it would look, you know? It yeah. had the kind of characters and the kind of texture that George had given the original three movies. And there was so much, you could feel the, the love to go back there, you know, and, and to be in that place again. But as time sort of, as, as a little bit of distance came on it, there was a sentiment of like, well, did it move the ball far enough forward in terms of, of progressing the narrative the way you needed to? And, and, and that was sort of 
I think a question that that Ryan Johnson was asking himself and 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 as a bold and and total totally original filmmaker really did um with a yeah and then had this interesting thing where he divided sort of the fans in a way too because there were those who were like well why did you move it so far that i didn't I, that's not what i wanted and then jj kind of stepped back in and said well i'm gonna i'm gonna correct the course and yeah and they're like well this isn't what i want either and and you felt by the end of it that there was this sense of the impossibility of pleasing everyone, you know? And so getting to sit there and sort of watch those movies evolve and see them get made and, and the moments when they felt really successful and the moments when they felt like they were struggling to find how to be successful was an interesting thing to witness when coming at trying to reboot something like this or, 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 I, I guess you'd say restart it, you know? Um, and, and one of the things you realize is that, well, you're simply not going to please everybody. The world is too divided for that. But what you hope to do is, is marry your sort of love for the thing and, and the, the, the pleasures you took from it with something that feels contemporary and feels a little bigger in certain ways than what the movie had done. And one of the gifts of Willow, for me at least, is that unlike Star Wars, it hadn't been explored that much. You know, they sort of left us with the movie in this very tight little adventure. And then they, they he didn't return to that planet or that world again. And it gave us a lot of room to sort of, to move out and to, to build out bigger villains and scarier places and, and, and far distant, destinations you know yeah that's a good point it was very open-ended um i like dempsey brick he's great at mimicking kilmer's mannerisms and attitude um what was the casting process like finding the new group of characters and yeah i know jack kilmer has a voice cameo but was ever in the 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 for I love Jack and he's been been very involved with Jack all along. I mean, he's just, he's a brilliantly talented actor. Yeah. I thought he was a very exciting possibility for, for, for that role potentially, you know, what happened with Dempsey is that he sort of came out of nowhere and, and, and sort of surprised everyone um, by just giving a wonderful audition that in a lot of ways felt very much like experiences I've had in my past and what I think Ron felt when he, when he saw Val do Mad Mardigan, which is that this is just such an unusual choice. He's not like anything you'd expect to see in a fantasy adventure. Um, And he brings this dimension of, of sort of eccentricity to it. And, and that felt in keeping with Val that we just couldn't sort of not try, you know? I mean, one thing that was fun about Willow and has always been sort of built into the DNA of this project is because it isn't Star Wars, there isn't this anxiety around it. There was more of a sense of experimentation and freedom and, you know, what can we do? What can be different? Can we use music in a different way? Can we, 
you know, can we have episodes where they're locked in a house together and it's the breakfast club? It's like, <laughs> what kind of things can it be? And, and, and casting Dempsey was, was one of those choices as was, uh, Ruby Cruz, who was just, again, something very contemporary and not sort of a classical fairy tale queen by any princess, by any, uh, by any measure. She was, she was a, she was a girl of the 21st century a little bit, sort of put into juxtaposition with this world. And then, so there were certain parts like, like, like Aaron Kellyman, who I'd met on Solo, who I just wanted to right. have in the show and and I thought was a huge talent and exactly in the wheelhouse of what Willow needed. There were people like Tony Rivellori who I thought could bring this like, you know, almost Seth Rogeny kind of fun and, and humanity to it and and humor. Um and then there were people like Dempsey and Ummer who I just discovered in the in the audition process, you know, and and were people who sort of our, our, we had a great casting director in in a woman named Lauren Evans who uh, who just sort of found these these sort of more random people, and then um and then Ali Bamber was the uh, came in in the first batch of tapes I saw for Elora, and I had known her from Nocturnal Animals, mm. and you know she's another one where it was sort of an instantaneous. We I sort of saw her face and saw her do the lines, and it seemed like. Well, this is that baby grown up and 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 become a woman, and she has all this sort of youthfulness and effervescence that the child had, but this intelligence and 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 sort of charisma that she would have growing up. So that one was sort of a, a no brainer, but they they did fall together in a in a sort of fortunate way. That's awesome. And, you know, I think my final question to you um, would be, probably can't answer this, but are we going to see Kilmer, Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan and come back in some sort of way? Um, I mean, we're definitely going to see him come back in some sort of way this season. I mean, he's, he's got, he's got a real presence in the story. The, the, the sort of, realities around how he'll come back and in, in what capacity are, are really unknowable, frankly. They're, they they ask the question like, will, the, will we do more? I would like to. I, I There's certainly no guarantee we will. And, you know, if they, if we do, is, is he up for it? And if he is, we'd love to have him do it, you know. Right. It's certainly a story we've always thought about with him sort of being you know, a, a living presence in the world as he is right now. And as he sort of looms over Willow, the, the series, you know, as this mm-hmm. sort of the heart of the thing and, and the, the, the beating heart of, of what they're all sort of coming from, but whether, whether I'm able to, to make that a, a reality on the day is that's to the gods, I think. That's awesome. Yeah, I could see this series going, you know, yeah. multiple seasons. I'm enjoying it so much. It's it's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad. And I, you know, I think we we have fun places we'd love to take it, but it's it's as we say, it's such an unusual time in the world of streaming and stories that 
you do get the benefit of believing that whatever does happen is probably the right thing to happen. And that's yeah. a good way to feel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one more thing looking forward, yeah. will we get a solo sequel? And, uh, you know, I think Donald Glover, the no. casting all around was amazing, but Donald Glover as Calrissian is one of the best casting choices. Amazing. And, and that I will say, I know that 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 Lucasfilm and 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 Disney are all kind of acutely aware of how wonderful he was in that part, and I think they would love to have him play that role again. So I think that's really more of a question for him at the yeah. moment would be my guess, because I think that if if he were game, they would certainly be game to to do it. That was a slam dunk. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, as for Solo, I don't know. You know, the future with Star Wars is hard to hard to predict. I mean, there's so much Star Wars coming now, and and you know, I know that the priority for for Lucasfilm seems to be creating a a movie franchise that can drive people back to to the theaters in the way that we're all as an industry hoping we will go um and i think that a lot of their energy is in the 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 huge television projects they've already got going and in that endeavor and when those sort of things are satisfied whether there's a place for for alden and and yono to come back i i i couldn't tell you um but i hope so Likewise, man. I'm yeah, keeping my hopes up. And well, good, uh, good. Um, well, well thank it's great you, talking Andy. to you, Alex. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining uh, Shattering Superstructure, and best of luck. Thanks, man. Uh, with the rest of Willow, I'm so excited to see the next four episodes. Yeah, cool. can't wait. I can't wait. And, uh, yeah, the, they're 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 a ride all the way to the to the final second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take care. All right. You too. Right. Bye-bye. All right, listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I'd like to thank Jonathan Kasdan for his time and generous answers and talking all things Willow, Solo, and teen comedy. Um, I'd like to thank his publicist, Casey, for setting this up. Publicists often don't get enough recognition in this industry. They work really hard. So thank you so much, Casey. And uh, thanks again, listeners, for tuning in again. I will see you next time. This is Alex Arabian signing out. <laughs>